It's trusting that in the confusion is the truth because we have a tape that's running the show. We have a story that's running the show and it can't change whilst ever it thinks it's in charge or it is running the show. So you've got to wait for the story to sort of falter and doubt itself. And then it creates enough space for what's underneath to come up. This is Show Your Business Who's Boss. Listen in on behind the scenes, unfiltered conversations with my favorite business owner friends who take charge and make their businesses work for them. Don't just be your own boss, show your business who's boss. I'm Pia Silva. I'm delighted to bring Melanie Gao on the pod today, both because I wanted an excuse to talk to her again and because everyone listening needs to know who she is. I was introduced to Melanie by a mutual contact when I was working on my TEDx speech, and I frankly knew nothing about her, and I didn't even look at her website before we spoke because I got this referral and I scheduled this call. And in the first 15 minutes, she managed to cut right through so much of the surface crap that had been swirling around in my head as I tried to craft my talk. And she pulled out what felt like I mean, pieces of my essence. I think I, at one point I was like, I am getting chills right now from what you are saying. And I just knew immediately on that call that I wanted to work with her and I needed her to help me with my TEDx talk. But she is far from being a TEDx coach, although that is technically a main service of hers. As she puts it, she makes legends by connecting people to their boldest message so that they can harness the unstoppable power of the spotlight. Obviously, I needed her and that in my life, and I would not have been able to craft the talk I did without her. And I'm bringing her on the show today to share her wisdom about how to tell a story that truly ignites and inspires the listener. We'll chat about our experience working together on my TEDx talk, and I hope she'll share a bit about how she walked across Spain with her two teenage sons over 33 days and how that evolved into her own legendary talk. So buckle up. Here we go. Welcome, Melanie. <laughs> Here I am giddy and so delighted to be speaking with you today and also can't wait to talk about our experience because it's been completely <laughs> magical. Before we do this, like okay. how was it on Friday? Oh my God, it was crazy. I had done it so many times <laughs> that actually it was the first time I, I really didn't have nerves about delivering the speech at all. And I know I wasn't in front of a, a crowd, but I was still on camera. You know, I really had to yes. deliver. And my, I just, I didn't even feel them. And I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. You just know. wanted to flow. Yeah, I was just totally there. Now, there were so many other parts about it <laughs> that, you know, I had to stay really focused. There were like people coming in and out sometimes and we'd have to stop and there would be like a plane and be like, stop, go back, you know, and I'm like in the middle of my, I'm like, I'm sobbing. <laughs> uh, stop, go back, two sentences. I'm like, I've only practiced this forward. <laughs> but that said, I didn't get rattled and I, I think I delivered really powerfully. And like I said, I did it so many times. It was like a dance. You know, I, I oh my God, that is music it. to my ears. Honestly, when I opened the email and I saw the, the photograph, immediately I was like, oh my God, that is so powerful because you'd created this space that just looked awesome. And there you were 
on your chair, like with the red circle and the white and this great big TEDx sign behind you and your jeans. And you're just, it was just like, that's peer. That's like, that's peer. And then I was like, oh, did, did, did she Photoshop this? Just, I mean, you know, is this just like a, like a, like maybe, I, I mean, I just was so terrified to get excited. Oh, <laughs> do you know what I mean? I was like, oh my God, that's Pia. And then I was like, oh no, wait, wait, wait. Manage your expectations just in case. She's merely <laughs> sending you something that it might look like. She's mocked oh. up something amazing. <laughs> Don't know, get it. Because your, your email said, if that's real, it's amazing. I was like, what do you mean, Melanie? <laughs> what do you think it is, Mel? And I'm like, well, my heart did this, you know, and then I was like, oh, no, no, wait, wait, read it back. <laughs> and then I was like, it's real? You looked amazing. You Thank just looked amazing. Well, I can't wait to see and share the video with you and everyone else in October. <laughs> oh, is that when it's going to get published? Uh-huh. <gasps> it's too long. Yeah. I can't wait. I know. No kidding. <laughs> I've imagined times when in the last few weeks when I'm like, you know what, I'd just send Peer that, but that person Peer's TED Talk when it comes out, because it'll be <laughs> the other voice they hear. Uh-huh. And so it's, cool. it is, it's that cool. That's yeah. Well, I just thought I'd feed you back that I don't mm-hmm. share every client's TED Talk, just oh. the ones I like. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. Thank you. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait to show it to you. I hope I make you super proud with my performance because that's really what it felt like. By the time I did it, I had done it so many times. Every inflection in my voice, you know, it just got into a pattern. <laughs> I'm so goddamn you know I mean? proud of the amount of effort you put into learning it. Like every bit of it, you examined every piece. You're like, you are like the my ideal client, the the go for it. They'll really work at it. The think of it for yourself client, the make it land client, the I can yep, I can adjust it here client. I will put the work in there client. Amazing. I from the outside, you know, a couple of years ago, looking at people's TEDx, I would never know that that is what it took requires to make something really. Yeah. I would never, because especially because when you really do it, it doesn't look like it's rehearsed. It looks effortless. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it looks like the a amount of rehearsal. And decided to tell a story or two. <laughs> right. Right. I love telling people that because I think a lot of people don't want to share that because they don't want to take away the magic of it looking like you showed up on the bar stool. Yeah. But I kind of have fun telling people that because I want them to know it's, I don't want to say that they need to put that it's worth putting that it. much effort in. Yeah, you can do it. Yeah. You know, and anyone can put that effort in. you have to do it. I mean, uh, it was a little unnerving because at, at a couple points towards the end, the person running it, he made a couple comments like, I'm, I, I really love how much effort you're putting into this. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> What are other people doing? Hello? <laughs> well, they're rocking up with the voice in the head that says, just sound natural, make it conversational. And they have literally not registered that making it conversational is absolutely only on the other side of having figured out how to sound like you are making it, how to make it sound conversational, how to how much effort it takes 
to really know what you're saying so that it just sounds conversational. They're like, right, I'll just be conversational. And then they can run off at the mouth and uh, forget what they're going to say or, you know, look up here for some words. (laughs) That was kind of the instructions we were given, actually. It's like, just talk, tell your stories, you know, just tell a couple stories. And, you know, the great thing is wheat from the shaft. What does that mean? <laughs> oh, okay. From the shaft? <laughs> no, shaft, the chaff. So the casing oh. outside the wheat is called the chaff. Okay. So if you want the wheat, you have to take the chaff away and throw it okay. away. And so that process just takes the, extracts the wheat and everybody <laughs> okay. else. The chaff. I'm going to tell my son that. He's obsessed with new words. With yes, and and lots of machinery that does things with wheat, which is the only time I see wheat. <laughs> There's lots of wheat in all his his books. <laughs> it's like, when do you see wheat in other parts of your life? It's I I feel like I know you so well, but you must feel like you know me so much better because most of the experience was you interviewing me and me finding out my own and and sharing my deepest darkest thoughts and <laughs> ideas over the last two months which is kind of nuts. I didn't even know you like three months ago. <laughs> I didn't know you two months and two days ago. <laughs> and now I feel like you're like totally my friend. But here's the thing. Nobody is a stranger when you know their story. And when you know their dreams, their family. And that's how, it get, that's how I feel about people's stories. And, and certainly for you and me, it's that dream sharing part that's been absolutely magical. And the delight, the absolute delight of, of, of seeing somebody's life and the, the dots that, that light up that you can join so that everything starts to make sense. And so they create sort of an arc to the future of what needs to be said out there with that boldest message. It's been just amazing to find yours. And as you say, like we hardly know each other two months ago. And now I know all your secrets and stories <laughs> and every amazing thing you've ever done. <laughs> I mean, we really I mean, went I mean, through every story. I, <laughs> I, I mean, but every time I learned something more about you, I just, I just grew. My jaw dropped and my, my reverence for you grew and my absolute respect for you grew. And just the joy of being invited to bring your next message you'll because let, let's face it every one of yours are bold just the next bold one it's been a complete and absolute privilege thank you for inviting uh, me along on the ride ah uh, thank you so much yeah you you probably know me better than most people in my life even just by even diving into all these different essence stories right because some of the stories i shared with you are maybe even stories that nobody else really even knows, not because they're a secret, but just because they're part of my experience that I maybe have never shared. And yet they're so core to who I am. It was like therapy. Yeah. (laughs) Well, we're very rarely asked to, to, or given the opportunity to really assess what it is. It is that one distinct idea you want to share with the world. So the TED stage is one of those platforms that, They've built it. It's not a. It's not the TED standard. It's the gold standard that TED uses. In primitive times, we would have valued the idea that was shared more than anything else. So we value personal stories because that is like the mirror. That's that's a reflection of who we are before we had a mirror. But the idea worth sharing would have 
created survival. And, you know, see, somebody goes into the forest, eats a bad berry, comes back, tells the settlement like, meh, 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 eh, and the, you know, mm-hmm. bad berry. The whole settlement is going to go, wow, cool, great info. And nobody else is going to get sick. So human is hardwired to really, really revere the one idea worth sharing. And that's what TED gives us. But when you get that pause in your life where you're like, why am I here? What is it I really want to share? I mean, I have got 18 minutes or less in the spotlight or the glare of the global eye. What is it I'm going to say? And that's that's why it's that deep dive into literally who we are and what are we here to say, even if it's what are we here to say now? Because it, we get created in finding that thread in our life that then evolves and unravels or unrolls across the future, across what, you know, the path we've opened up with it. Is that, I mean, we did, I know we did it in a deep dive. You don't actually do it that way normally. No, I do it like that the whole time now. That's it. That's my gold standard. So we've got to tell that story. Tell me, tell me. Yeah. (laughs) Right. So I've been, I usually work for three months with somebody. It's like, it's a 12 week period and that's kind of arbitrary. It's something I created. I was like, well, we have to go through this process and it has, we have to give these, you know, we have to do these things to get this result. And that mapped out to about three months. And that's, that was all very cool. But you well, were put in touch with me without three months between <laughs> the, the time Quite we met. Less. Yeah. Add. But you do brand in three days, right? Mm-hmm. So we were having that conversation and you were saying to me, but I don't have three months. And I was like, but I really, really want to work with her. There's got to be a solution. And I went to bed that night and woke up in the morning going, but Pia knows how to do this. <laughs> she literally knows how to do it in three days. That's how we'll do it. And I just trusted that you already knew how to do it in three days, these big life-changing things in three days, and that it would be it would be how we would do it. And you said to me, I don't, I don't really know how this is going to work, but I'm going to trust it. And I was like, yeah, well, I'm trusting you know how to do this, really. <laughs> Great. We were just trusting each other. <laughs> we just we just dived in. But the fascinating thing is we effectively fitted in three days right. the same amount of hours it takes over three months. Of course, what actually the, the experience for me was just such a sheer delight. If you spend three months, first of all, somebody's got to find all those hours in three months. And that's hard to schedule. But secondly, it gives the mind a lot of time to doubt and rationalize its way out of anything. Mm. Yes, right. I, I, exactly. Right? Again. So, <laughs> yes. so in doing it in three days, we just managed to bypass all the mind goblins and the mind gymnastics. And we then, we were like, boom, out the other side of this sort of crucible. And then we just had to integrate it. And I said, I remember saying, and it's created in saying it, it's created in doing it, it's created along the way. It, it's it, it's a template, but it evolves as you start to learn how to speak this again, as you start to create a new story template for your life. And that's what my experience was. We did this extraordinary three days session. We got exactly the same result as I'd get over three months. <laughs> and then we spent the available time between then and the performance concentrating on the integration of it and concentrating on embodying it. And it was, I'm like, I am never doing it any other way again. P, 
Pia has created my new template. It creates much better results. Cool. Yeah, I'm not surprised because that's the exact reason why we ended up doing our branding in this model. Because of what you said, bypassing all the doubts, bypassing all the backing up and rethinking. And the same hours over three months are not as powerful as the same hours over three days when you're on a flow and you're you're already thinking about all these ideas and you you aren't getting stopped in two hours and going about your day. I mean, I, I found it to be incredibly powerful. And that just meant, by the way, what we met on a Tuesday, we started on Saturday. By by the following Tuesday, we had spent we had spent like 20, 30 hours together talking about my deepest, darkest stories. Yeah. It's no wonder we're friends because I've got friends that I haven't spent that many hours with <laughs> or at least that many hours sober with. I know. And, and also, I think it really helped me. And this is just, well, I don't know if this is kismet or that's why I ended up connecting with you when we first had our first call. But as you said, at some point too, we're so aligned in so many of our values and and bigger picture life goals and wants that I would say things and you already knew where I was going with it because you've had those same feelings and experiences. <laughs> and that was easier for me because I was like, I know she knows what I'm talking about because she's done all the- these things more than I have. <laughs> like, So that was helpful because I uh, I can imagine talking to somebody who doesn't have that perspective and they might keep trying to box you into something that they understand. That is why I think I'm a a different type of TED coach. First of all, my absolute intention is to find that person's story. And I come from the creative world. I come from acting initially and directing. And the core of acting is empathy. It is probably the most Mm. empathetic profession in the world. You have to climb inside a character's head. You have to know it. You have to and often they are the baddie or the sidekick or the, I don't know, all sorts of people you're not. So, you know, first of all, you have, I have that experience of the power of empathy and the power of being in somebody's essence. And then I've traveled. And one of the things that was very key to the way I think about the world happened when I was about seven. I was sent to boarding school. I come from Kenya, East Africa. Of course, it was a missionary school. It was a Christian union school. And they have these things on Sundays where you attend a Christian, little Christian union service. And they have these little books. And the books tell these amazing stories of people that part waters or, or quell, you know, storms at sea. And there's this dude called Jesus and he walks on water. And these stories were very exciting. But you only got the book if you attended seven times. And then you got a book every seven times you attended. So I loved these. I was there for the books. I loved the stories. I read them to my teddy bears under the bed covers when I was at school at nighttime. And one day I was pulled aside by the leader of the scripture union. And he sat me down and he said, "Ah, Melanie, I just want to ask you a very serious question. Do you actually believe in God or do you just like the books? And honestly, my little brain just went, a belief in God is optional? Huh, I have no idea. I thought I believed in God. I'm doing everything everyone else around me is doing. But you're telling me I don't have to believe in God? People don't believe in God? Oh, my God. That is fascinating. And I literally, you know, since then, 
just dived in people's belief systems. I, I, I married a Jewish man. I then married a Christian man. You know, Church of England, I, I dabbled in Buddhism. I know about Ayurvedic world, the Aboriginal belief system. Of course, I was African, so I was growing up around witch doctors. And I just became really, really, really infused with how beliefs shape us. And so when I see somebody and they tell me that, for example, they they were offered an opportunity to go to the Amazon exam, the Amazon forest, and nearly turned it down because they believed they might miss the second coming of Jesus. I just hear that because I know how strong beliefs are. And it doesn't in any way get me to judge them. And I don't try to make them be quiet about it. I'm just there like, so what did we learn? So what did we learn? And that's the core of why I work with somebody differently. Mm. First of all, I can empathize. And secondly, this sort of pantheistic experience of the world, and that literally we are created by our beliefs and our values. And they're created in the snap of fingers. And they take a long time to unpick, but they can change in a moment. And so when somebody tells me a story, I get where they come from. And it's, it's, it's a context, and all stories exist within context. And all our stories are, are ours, and we're created by our life. And we wouldn't never have an idea worth sharing if we didn't have all of this source information. So the source information is valid and, and important and truthful, no matter what. So I was going through your process Obviously, I wasn't thinking about your process. I was just talking and answering your questions. What's going on on your side? (laughs) What are you looking for? I mean, you basically asked me to tell you tons of stories. What what were you doing with that? Tell me a little bit more about how you processed that and how that became the talk, because I wasn't paying attention. I was too busy thinking about my stories (laughs) to to know. (laughs) So the, the fascinating thing is, is that it's created in conversation. Mm-hmm. It is an exchange. And, you know, there is that there's there's a scientific basis for it all, but it's essentially energy patterning. It's watching you speak and you, you there's a physiology that changes when the when the mind goes from the story it's running that it knows and the story that informs it that it's unaware of. And you can see the physiology changing, you can hear the tonology in somebody's voice falter as it flips into something it just isn't quite sure of. And that's when you know that you've got a thread. And essentially, you know, an idea can take flight over an entire city. You just need to sort of pull the thread and create it into something. I mean, that's how we got to the moon, for goodness sakes. So what we're doing here is catching the tail of something that's just, you know, disappearing or just emerging. And you, you catch it and you're just pulling it. And you have to just keep on that thread and it will take you somewhere if you pay attention it will it will it'll move it'll move as it falls into place with you or it or it or it goes into more confusion it's trusting that in the confusion is the truth because we have a tape that's running the show we have a story that's running the show and it can't change whilst ever it thinks it's in charge or it is running the show. So you've got to wait for the story to sort of falter and doubt itself. And then it creates enough space for what's underneath to come up. So when I'm listening, it's, you know, on a just on a really 
basic biology level, I'm watching, listening, and um, feeling kinetically, because those are all symptoms of, of, of what we're telling traveling through our bodies and in our voices. On an energetic level, there's, there's definitely occasions when, more often than not, when somebody is holding an image in their head or a videotape, a film that they're running in their mind map outside their head that I can catch a glimpse of. And, th- you know, that's, that's it. That's an, there's a, you know, there's interesting science around that. And I don't bother needing to know it exactly why it works, but it does. And the important thing about finding that, working that hard with somebody, is that you're actually putting them up on stage with their, with their message for the world and not just a template of standing on a stage and delivering a presentation. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, it's a, when some, often, what do I wear comes up or something like that. And we're all so used to turning up at an office or a job in our uniforms and there's a way to look and there's a way I, <clears throat> that maybe an expectation that any kind of presentation or professional setting or a TED stage requires you to look a certain way. And actually, it's about unpicking everything that our culture has taught us mm. to see if it's really yours. I did make a film and one of the things I filmed it a bit of it in Los Angeles. It was set in Los Angeles, but we made it in a studio in the UK. And then we cheated that by filming outside in Los Angeles. And we were driving around and in Los Angeles, there's walls with huge murals on it. And there's, there was one absolutely huge mural that basically said, where do your beliefs come from? And then just listed things like, you know, God, society, your mother, you know, your coffee shop advert and things like that. And that's, whenever I think of things, I think, that's what I'm really looking at. Mm. You, you know, as you explain this, I'm realizing how that process is something that I have in different ways in, with different therapists, coaches, programs have tried to do to fix things in my life, right? That's right. when you have challenges in your life, you try to find the core belief so you can decide yes. if you really want it. And you realize that you have these stories and beliefs that you got somewhere and maybe they're not serving you. And I never even considered the idea that that process would also be how you share who you are in a transformational way or communicate it to other people because I've only seen it in the context of here's a belief that I want to change because it's not serving me. <laughs> and that's the yeah. first time you've explained it where I'm seeing it as the other side of the coin and how it can be wielded in such a positive way. I guess until just now, I thought that those beliefs, I only associated them with the negative. The beliefs, and of course, everything yeah. is both sides, isn't of course. it? Everything of is course. like duality. As above, so below. It, you know, the, I tell you why one of the one of the flip cases for me was, uh, you know, I have a rescuer pattern. You know, <laughs> I like to rescue people, mm. and until I could flip it into actually elevate people, so I can either rescue people from their, you know, uh, dark parts, or I can bring them to their light part. And it mm. was when I flipped that, and it's just literally the other side that I actually started to be able to work really effectively and obviously no longer have that kind of boyfriend. Right. <laughs> I know some people with those patterns. Yeah, that's a, that's an easy one to spot from the outside. Right. <laughs> but instead, oh, and that's my point was with that, you know, instead of just trying to stop being a rescuer. Right. You have to was, replace 
something. I had to replace it with something. Mm -hmm. And that makes me really good at what I do. And, you know, and fortunately, don't have the bad boyfriends anymore. Very fortunate. Very fortunate. Melanie, how do you know all this stuff? (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much. But um, (laughs) psychology is really fascinating. And it's, come on, we're all lifelong learners or, or we're all fascinated by something. But Coming from the creative world, there's a sort of a permission that I don't realize other people don't have to just explore what interests you. And you see, that's where we did resonate hugely. And so I've had those those urges to just take up NLP without thinking, I have to start an NLP business and become Mm. a master practitioner and build a career out of this. It was just like, this is so fascinating. Um, so fascinating. That makes sense. So okay. <laughs> and the other thing is that I, you know, I did hustle my way into the grown-up world in what I call the real world of the movies, and it was during the Weinstein era. So you know, tough crowd. And oh um, mental agility was very important, and so was physical. Got <laughs> to stay yeah. light on your feet in those days. Oh my gosh! But the world of storytelling, and it, this is why it was it. The hero's journey is at the core of the movie world. And learning how to tell a story really means you learn, you have to learn how human beings work. And you have to learn how they work on like an external level, an internal level. You've got to understand the philosophy because all those three things have to be in a character for it to become believable. Then you see other people working with those words. And then you see them perform in front of the camera and you see the shape that it takes that it like literally comes into being. And so a deep immersion in that side of me makes me know about this subject. I know absolutely all about music. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's really not worth discussing <laughs> which Beatles songs is my favorite because I'm likely to name something by the Rolling Stones. Uh-huh. So we all have our areas of right. ignorance, right? <laughs> No, it's people. And I love people more like I, I often say, you know, I do love people, but I don't if you're going to tell me a story, you, you're welcome to. But I will have an opinion because that's my job. It's, it's, for me, it's not a conversation. Well, it isn't everything just stories, which means. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> Even metaphors are stories. Data is a story. When did you cross over from what well, sounds like from a very early age with these these books and decide and being told, I bet he didn't mean to give you the option of not believing in God when he asked you that question. <laughs> I bet he said, whoops, how did I let the cat out of that bag? But, but the, actual- oh my God, we lost, we lost a sheep. <laughs> and she was really paying attention to, <laughs> we really needed her. But the transition to I guess, consciously dissecting how stories worked versus just doing it naturally. I mean, is it because you were an actor? Was it when you became a filmmaker? I think the first step was when I became a filmmaker. And the reason I wanted, uh, I wanted to act, not because I wanted to be a film director. And the only woman female film director that existed when I was a little girl with needing a role model was Barbara Streisand. And so I was like, well, that's how she became a director. 
that's how I'll do it. I didn't take into account that I didn't live in Hollywood. I didn't have her contacts, that I just didn't have the same environment at all. All I needed was that thing was like, she's, and so I went to, I was transplanted. We were forcibly repatriated back to a country that we'd never, ever seen. Kenya is the when? only colony that was founded and handed back in one lifetime. So my grandparents were the founding wave of infrastructure makers. My parents were born there. I was born there. We were chucked out. So we went to England. And that's when I also, I landed and I went, ooh, this is a new normal. And I believe I have learned their ways. Most people cannot tell that I'm not English or British or, you know, so I've blended in. So I did get that advantage of knowing that there were two completely different ways of thinking in the world. And there weren't any schools. There wasn't a director's school or a, or a degree you could do back then. There was just drama school, for mostly for people to go and do something like RADA, become, you know, a royal court actor. So I just did what was available and went to school and learned to be an actress and came out and found Weinstein and his friends were out there waiting for us <laughs> oh, and was like, you know, seriously, I'm really just here to like, I really just want to be a director. And that was a no. So I did exactly what you did and decided I was going to do it anyway. It was during the Thatcher era and she broke the, the unions, including the film studio unions. And there was just this little bubble of mavericks who we're like, well, we're just going to make micro-budget movies. We're still in 35 mil here, so micro-budget was still, still, you know. Right, very expensive. Um, and we, so originally I had grand ideas. I was going to make post-apocalyptic movies and I was going to tell big stories. And they obviously got smaller and smaller. And I got a deal with Vanessa Redgrave with Golan Globus Movie Company to film in Yugoslavia just as that broke up. So I just kept sort of, making the brief more and more achievable uh -huh. and a girlfriend she she wrote me a letter back in those days so I got it a few weeks later from Los Angeles saying I've solved the dating problem it's called dial a gigolo and I was like oh that sounds like a fascinating story why wouldn't women go to a gigolo and then I was like that sounds like a story you could set in one room if you can set a story in one room it's mostly dialogue you can film it in one set and then you can only have two people in each shot. Oh, my God, this is how we're going to make a movie. So I did write a script that was not a passion project, but it did explore female emotions around why they might have sex with a stranger. And it is about 93 minutes of conversation. It's sort of like Oprah Winfrey on, on thing. It's got 48 seconds of boobs. So it really was just like a talk show <laughs> about why women... And these women open up their heart to this gigolo. So that's how I ended up really getting into stories. And of course, all those women were people I knew and all those reasons why somebody might go to a gigolo or a stranger and have paid sex with them was where it all started. And if I look back, all my stories became about people and why. And I don't really tell any other stories. I cannot tell fiction stories. I can't make the plots up. I'm not any good at sort of marketing copy particularly. I'm good at people and motivations and why they do things and their deep, dark motivations and big motivations and ones they can tell their friends and ones they can't. And their deepest philosophy, their ought, the world should be like this, desire. So that's when that, you know, and that that happened. And then actually, I, I met the man of my dreams, <clears throat> turned out to be the man 
my dream father because he gave me two sons and those are the the people I'm tethered to this earth through but my eldest was not well he was had asthma eczema allergies but he was one of the top five percent sufferers in the country and at one point he was on medicine at night and medicine in the day and something every four hours and everybody around me told me that's okay we'll just manage him this is how you'll manage it until he sort of grows out of this at 15 or 60. And I actually heard the word manage and I was like, that's not cure. But at 16, we'll have to deal with all of the side effects of all of the crap I've given him. And that doesn't sound like a life. And he he can't hear and it's miserable and he's got sinus problems and read a different story, read some other way of dealing with it. And but by this point, I was staying at home. I was his main carer and actually got him off all his medication in three months and then sat with that and thought, well, why did what I do work? The, the most natural thing in the world was to turn that into a book because my skill was telling stories. And I was like, what do I do with this experience? I'm, I'm at home. I, by this point, I've got a, a brother and, and you know, I'm a different person and I can't go back. Apparently, I can't go back to the movies <laughs> because I've got these mm. things that call me mother now. I've got this whole other production going on. And movies have changed into digital. So that world's changed. Gosh. And so I basically turned his story into a book to help other parents help them make good health decisions with their sick kids. And then that just sort of rolled into a second publishing deal that was that I actually lost at the same time as my dad died and my marriage broke down. So I had to walk out of there with a bigger story. And that's how I ended up walking across a country with my two sons. Wait a second. Back up. You wrote this first book while being at home with your kids. Correct. Which is already a huge feat. <laughs> Did well, you? And I had to. I, yeah. I had to explore medical. I had to explore medical philosophy. So you've got this thing. Everyone thinks differently. There are different belief systems. So when the the modern medicine was effectively presenting us with one option, which was to manage him, I was like, well, maybe not everyone thinks that way. What do I know? Oh, I know witchcraft works. So that turns into a mind-body connection. So I'm over in America and my NLP is coming into play and I'm like, see? Well, I wonder what else is out there. So then I'm obviously, I go to osteopathy and go to chiropractor and go to homeopathy and then I'm going to Ayurveda and I'm going to Aboriginal. So I then put all of those together and looked through them to see where the commonalities were. What were the principles underneath all of this that were driving that? And that's, it took me six years to research uh, write, find a publisher and get it published. So it wasn't an instant overnight mm-hmm. thing. But meanwhile, I did wow. bring up the kids. So right. <laughs> not, I, you know, I wasn't doing nothing. <laughs> no, quite the opposite. I'm impressed you wrote a book and got it published and did all this research while bringing up two children. So fortunately, the, fortunately the, the eldest got better. So, you know, much more time. <laughs> well, he must have gotten better because that evolved into you walking across Spain. Well, yeah, that's where the, the, the beauty of it is. We actually walked across Spain when he was 16. And that would have been when he would be just growing out of all of that life debilitating chronic illness. So that was a beautiful thing to witness what we had gained back just by gaining back his health. I didn't walk across the country to prove that he was well. Um, I walked across the country with them because they watched a movie. So you see, movies have got this thing. (laughs) They're very powerful storytellers. What movie and what happened? They watched and they said, Mom, let's let's 
go do this? Because walking across Spain, you, you did the Camino. Correct. Yes. 800 kilometers. How long is that? I have no idea. <laughs> it's 500 miles. 500 miles. You walked 500 miles with a 12-year-old and a 16-year-old over a month. Because. Yes. Because we watched a movie. Because. So this is the other thing about inspiration, right? So we used to watch, I mean, we obviously watched tons of movies in the house. And by this point, there's love films. So they'll deliver a CD through your box and you can send it back. So I don't even have to go to the blockbusters. But we had, we, I, we were, I was so happy. We were watching Half Naked Sweaty Men with Big Weapons Saving the World. And I love those kind of movies. <laughs> but just, 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 just to sort of be responsible my, to my sons, I'd be like, you know, we have to consider everybody in this family. So, you know, we have to watch a pink box every once in a while for mummy. And so they'd go on Love Film and they were like, oh, mom, this looks like, like a film for you. And it was the way. Now, this is a terrible film if you're a filmmaker. It is old people walking and talking across a country. It was made by Michael Sheen. It was made in five days. It is, I mean, honestly, it's a terrible film, but it changes people's lives. Wow. <laughs> so th that, was, that was the whole thing. It was Tuesday. I remember so distinctly we had sausage, mash, peas and gravy. And it was cold and it was dark. And we stuck on the film for Mummy. And then as the credits rolled, and this is not a film that, a th you know, a two young boys should find fascinating. As the credits rolled, my eldest stood up and said, can we do that one day? And I literally, you know, the difference between a heart yes and a head yes, like, like a yes, that's like, I need to do that. I want to do that. That is core. The youngest just stood up and went, yeah, I want to do that. And I was looking at them and I was like, well, I did read the book by Paolo Coelho back in 1998 <laughs> and I did put it on my bucket list. So I think I'm in a corner here. <laughs> that means that's unanimous. We all want to do it. Okay, that's what we're going to do. And then that was just one of those decisions. And this is another way that we resonated. It's yeah. like the right. You just do it and then you figure out how. And I'm in no way am I saying that it was easy because I lived a life in high heels and I was like, you know, uh, you're never going to walk across country. You don't even own any flat shoes. Um, <laughs> you put on literary dinners and poetry competitions and run history festivals and things like that. And you're an artist. But at some point, you know, you just go, well, I'll figure it out. You only walk this one day at a time. So I'll, that's only I only need to figure out that. And I just, uh, it, you know, the summer holidays were the most logical. So, you know, the brain goes to work and you're like, summer holidays were they were the most logical. Somebody said it took about 33 days. I've since learned that that's because Jesus was on the earth 33 years. And it's a Christian walk now. It's only a Christian walk by accident of history because the Christians beat the, beat the Muslims. So they own that part of the world and they couldn't go to Jerusalem anymore because that was too dangerous. So Rome designated two other, you know, cities as pilgrimage destinations. <laughs> Santiago de Compostela became one and they invented a goddamn story about St. Paul, Pierre de Jacques or whatever. Saint's bones are in that church that his barrel where he was sent out to see his body was sent out to see washed up on the seashore there and it came to Santiago. And none of it makes sense, but it is an pagan route originally so it's it follows the milky way and it's you know so it's got a lineage that's taken a long time but right now it just it happens to be a christian route 
because it's Christian, anybody can go on it. So it, it's, it, you know, we had to, we had to get to the start of it. Where did you start? that was. Yeah, where well, is we that? We started in France. So okay. There are five routes. Originally in the old, old, old days, there was a route from every front door in the country. You basically stepped outside of your front door and walked. <laughs> um, but all the routes converge in certain areas. And one of them is over the Pyrenees because there's only one part of the Pyrenees that is you can traverse in one day. So you can get over that mountain without being stuck on it at nighttime when um, ambushes and, and, and robbers were active and bad weather. Because if you get bad weather, you die. So there's only one part of the Pyrenees you can walk over in a day. So all the roads meet at St. Uh, Jean-Pierre-de-Paul Jean in France. And then you start there and you go over the Pyrenees and you're in Spain by the, by the end of the day. So it's wow. weird, right? Yeah. And then it's only 776 more kilometers to go. Uh-huh. <laughs> and what, I mean, and okay, I want to ask you what that was like, or, <laughs> but that's a big, that's a big question. And also, that's what your TEDx is about. It is. It <laughs> is. And you see that that's where we come to. So I didn't set out to, you know, for anything to happen from doing this walk, that was me wanting to give my sons a space to decide what kind of men they wanted to do. By this point, I, of course, think I now know everything. I have done so much personal development. I've, you know, I've done that and got the T-shirt. So I yeah. just think there's not much more I can learn in life. I'm there to do this with my kids. And of course, you never know how long you've got with your children, when all of you will be together, when you can do something like this. So it was my love letter to them. But in walking it, I, I, I was telling the story on Facebook and people were on the journey with me. So by the time I'd finished the walk, of course, when I started out, I didn't realize it was extraordinary. I had no idea. You know, 18,000 people walk this walk every day. Every day. <laughs> right? But this is, you know, this is one of my, this is a bit of my shtick now. I'm like, there is always competition. So how is it that a single mom was singled out to tell her story on the stage? And that's the power of story. So if I back up a little bit, I went on that walk. And within three days, I had this little voice going, you'll have to write a book. You'll have to tell the story. And the other side was going, oh, come on. Literally everybody who does something like this thinks they need to tell a story, wants to write the book discovers something so amazing. Like I know publishers' desks are stacked high of manuscripts they would just want to file in that bin. And you know the publishing world, this voice was like going, you know the publishing world, that's how it is. And for 33 days, I had that argument going. And it was on the very last day as I was descending out of the forest, out of the countryside I'd been in for a week and into this city that I heard the voice that said, Yes, but you know the publishing industry. Of all the 18,000, I knew how to tell a story. And that's when I, it sort of was, I suddenly realized I'd seen a film and that inspired my sons. I'd read a book and that made me put it on my bucket list. People telling stories is how the inspiration gets out there. I'm one of the few people who actually has that power and knows the four powers of storytelling, that stories can heal, they can inspire, they can lead, they can foretell the future. Those are those four powers. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm like one, oh, 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 damn, was what I said. <laughs> <laughs> damn. And I basically said, well, I'm no Paolo Coelho. 
So if you want me to do this, I'm going to need some help. And I just said that and left it at that. And within three weeks of coming home, I was invited to put on an exhibition of the photographs I'd taken on the walk. Remember, I'm a photographic artist. Then I was invited to give a talk at that exhibition. But we're talking about an exhibition that was in the Age Concern Cafe at the back of my town hall. So we're Mm -hmm. not talking anything (laughs) huge and grand. And I didn't even know what my story was. I hadn't integrated it. I Not a clue. So I didn't publicize it. I could put on a show. I could fill auditoriums. This was one of those ones I was like, well, tell you what, I will do it. But everybody brings a can of food and we'll give it to the food bank. And... 20 people showed up, but somebody posted a photograph on Facebook of the talk and somebody in an art center saw that photograph and invited me to come and put on an exhibition and give a talk. And that became a full week long interactive sound exhibition plus talk that got sold out. And it turned into this national inspirational speaking tour that literally was sold out in gigs around the country. I had my face on a bus. It was very surreal. And one of the things that people kept saying to me was, is you will write a book, right? And I, to do this, had had to give up my work. I mean, I I worked, you know, like a freelancer. So I just basically had shut down all my clients and was coming back and would have just opened them all up. But I just didn't have any time to, you know, both answer the call to give the talks and create new clients. So I basically said, well, I, you know what, I'll need to pre-sell the book. Like if you guys want a book, I kind of need you to trust me and just give me the money for the book now. So I I ended up crowdfunding it. I was 178% crowdfunded in 28 days. The statistics of that are extraordinary. Projects by women don't get backed on Kickstarter as easily statistically than men. And passion projects, even less, and books, much less. And here I was with this job now of creating this book. And that's what I ended up doing. And it's it's a picture book. It it takes as long as it uh, a movie to read. And it just it just rolled into this sort of epic inspirational tour around the UK. And I got invited to speak on the TED stage on that little red circle, much like you. And that was, I, you know, I didn't know. I didn't know what my, what the big message was worth sharing. I had still no idea what, what, what was coming out of this talk. I wasn't entirely sure why I had so much attention and everything else like this. This is why I sometimes say we're created by the experience. What I remember, or rather what I relied on, is that I was going to remind people. Part of storytelling is not necessarily just to share an idea or a personal story, which is also very powerful, one that heals or inspires or leads. The the essence or the energy inside inspiration, when it's really powerful, is when it reminds people of their humanity. So I sat there. I just told this story, as I was asked to, from A to B on a journey Obviously, I had some storytelling devices in there, and I had my little points, and I remembered some movie techniques, and I'd never given a PowerPoint presentation, having never grown up in the corporate world. I'd never given a PowerPoint presentation. I'd certainly never shared myself. And I just went into what were the truly emotional parts of that story, what really happened to me. And of course, one of the big things was that I I saw, I watched my my sons. Well, okay, day 14. I'm really, t- I feel like I've been walk- walking since the 14th century. And I uh, was really tired. 
and there was a coffee bar in the middle of nowhere. And so we sat down to have a Coke and there was an A board next to us with a taxi sign on it. And when I stood up, my knee just gave way and I sat back down with a sharp pain. And obviously my boys was very concerned. And then they were like, mum, you should, you should catch a cap. And I said, you know, my, my 12 year old pointed to the sign and said, maybe it's a sign, mum. And I was like, oh, mm-hmm. you know, I'm really helpless in the face of that kind of chatter. <laughs> and I said, okay, fine, we will, we will take a cab. And both my sons turned to me and said, no, mum, you're taking it, we're walking. And it was in that moment that I, I realized that I had to let go, that as I watched them walk off while I was waiting for my cab, it's something I could have missed. I could have just had a busy head, whatever. As I watched them walk off, I realized that that was the last time I was going to see my boys. The next time I saw them, they would be men. And it was, it was that. It was my love letter to my sons. It was the space to allow them to, to choose what kind of men they wanted to be. And I had no other learning to share with anybody than that. It's the grace of being a mother or the grace of being tethered to this planet by other people, with other people, and what that means to us. And so I told that story but I obviously told that story for five years. And it was standing in rooms all around the country with people looking to me for an idea or looking to me for an answer and having not not one for them. I didn't have an answer for them. I had an experience. I could divert them for an hour and a half. I could make their world magical. I could remind them of what it was like to be human, but I couldn't send them home with the solution they could implement in their home right there and then. And that's when I realized there's a trap, a gilded cage to inspiration, because we can take it and do it exactly what we want with it, including nothing. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted to influence people into change, into making it their lives different, give them something that could make their lives different as they walked out of the room and didn't listen to me anymore. And that's how I ended up realizing that being creative and being inspirational and doing all these amazing projects was not enough. It's a whole other story how I discovered it. But what I realized was that I needed to teach people how to fish, essentially, and that I couldn't tell every story out there, but I could teach people how to tell theirs. And that way, that way, the change could happen in many, many different places. I could light candles in darknesses everywhere with anybody that would let me do it. I have tears streaming down my face and I've heard that story before. <laughs> and that's the power that you're talking about. That is the power. <sighs> yeah. And it changed my life. Yeah. It changed my life in a way that I couldn't possibly have seen when I was 12. When I was seven, getting hauled up and questioned about whether I believed in God or not. I couldn't have seen it when I was making movies. I didn't make another movie. And, you know, uh, one movie is not a career. But what I did make was stories. I did publish a book. Then I crowdfunded a book. And what I kept doing was telling people's or telling a human story. It was mine, but I told it in a way that absolutely other people could take the lessons from it. They could see themselves in it and they could change the way they treated their children. They could change their thought of their possibility. There are, I gave that talk to schools and I have phone calls from headmistresses saying that their troublesome child in the class asked their parents if they could do the walk and they are now A students. So, you know, 
I knew that this, 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 you know, this transformational power of the story is in that resonance, is in that emotional connection. It's in other people being able to see themselves and you're just a vehicle for it. But it was, it's no way I could have seen by doing that walk that I would become a cliche. I would find my purpose. <laughs> I would, it would change my life. I would find my purpose and I'd be here today talking to you. And my life has changed exponentially, but it has changed because of the people that have come into my life that I have been able to be in this conversation with. Yeah, that's incredible. As somebody who <laughs> I like playing with playing with the ideas of what is the most efficient, effective way to do things. And when you tell this, how your story unfolded and how it has been able to create this ripple effect, it sounds like the perfect way to affect as in, in fact, affect, inspire as many people as possible to be. And I, I, I share some of that with you. If you can help an, another individual do something huge and powerful in their world, you have been part of the spark for a whole movement. It can take one person and, and not everyone is going to have a huge ripple effect. Maybe some will have huge ripple effects. Others will have just a, a smaller effect. But either way, I mean, that story of that that kid, that's amazing. That's so amazing. And we, I think that's one of the things that, you know, we genuinely do resonate on is yeah. I recognize in you, you you understand the power of becoming, of finding your brand is really finding your essence and that what power there is in doing the work we were put here to do. And you help people in a different way, but exactly as powerfully to do the work they're meant to do. And it's by the people doing the work they're meant to do that the world changes. Yeah. And, you know, it's, um, I've had some similar experiences when you explain, you know, you were following these impulses and you were doing the things that made sense to you and you didn't have to know what the what the message was and you didn't have to know what the plan was but it was the following of the impulses that led you there and that is the leap that we've been talking about for two <laughs> months right and you see this is why amazing. i just you know and this is the so this is like you are like completely proof of this so my experience of life and yours resonate but I can't tell the story. You tell it. So this is your story. Your story is of the leap, the not knowing the, and, and doing it, becoming unstoppable. And so you're, you know, we do have a yeah, similar approach and similar results and similar values and drives. But only you can tell the story of that, taking that leap, of, of not knowing, of it being okay not to know the outcome. Of it, because because that's your completely lived experience, and you have put the words to it that I couldn't. They're your words, and it's your story that explains how you know this to be completely true. And that's so powerful because you remember throughout this process, there were many times where I said, oh, but that's so trite. Oh, but that's so cliche. Oh, but that's <laughs> everyone knows that, don't they? And isn't this doesn't. Uh, I'm just going to be another inspirational speaker saying the thing that we've all heard before and what you reminded me and even 
you have you are a demonstration of yourself as a as maybe one book in a stack of books about the Camino and yet not at all because nobody has your story of the two sons saying take the taxi we're going to walk i mean that's so powerful and it doesn't matter i feel like i say this in much, much less eloquent words all the time to the people i'm coaching which it doesn't matter if you've heard this this message before if you've heard other people say things or it fa- feels like a cliche or it feels like a universal truth it is quite the opposite it is the universal truth that you bring to life with your specific stories and details that will have listeners who might already have experienced this experience it in a different way i mean the idea of taking my son on a camino i mean i don't you know does it bring tears to my eyes because i have a baby and i think of like that moment in my future and how insane that will be <laughs> or how scary that sounds. I am the kind of person that would take my kid on a on a walk across Spain. And yet maybe that wouldn't be something I would be inspired to do without hearing your story to do it. So how powerful is that? Oh, and that's a life changing experience for a for a teenager or a middle schooler. Yeah. You know, if I if I look at my 12 year old, so he will he was 12 at the time and I was a single parent and you know, in his world, we didn't we didn't have as much money as everybody else. And certainly his friends had 20 pounds to spend in the sweet shop after school. But he felt like really, un, he just didn't really like that. That made him feel like he was not enough, that he just um, would never have friends because he couldn't keep up with them. Mm. All sorts of stuff oh. like that going on in his 12 little, little 12 year old head. And on the walk, he worked out told me that story. You know, I'm not enough story. I don't have enough money. We don't have enough money. This, this, how, this makes me feel bad. And I don't think, I don't even remember what I said, but I know that by the end of that day, we walked into this city called Burgos and there's a big sh- wishing well at the center of the, all of the square, all of the towns and cities in Spain have a big square with a cathedral or a church on it. So there's the cathedral, there's the big wishing well. And Burgos is the sort of city that gave birth to El Cid. It's got a massive bell tower. And when that rings, literally the pavement vibrates. And we were at the wishing well. And he threw a coin into it. And then he turned to me and he said, Mom, (laughs) I don't need to buy sweets to be a good friend. And that was it. That was it. And he is an incredibly centered young man. Now he's left home a couple of weeks ago, actually. Um, You know, he he just got a core. He just grew a core that he knew he was worth enough, no matter what. And he holds it, he holds it and he's got this wisdom. And he's the kid um, that actually walked the last four days in sandals. And he just had this smile that was so big. People kept gravitating to him to try and, I don't know, like maybe like get some of his, 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 I don't know, wisdom or universal something or other. They wanted his aura. And they would speak to him. Radiating. He would just smile at them. He was yeah. radiating. He would just smile at them. And everyone was like, that kid literally has the wisdom of the universe in him. And, you know, I can track the moment. I can track that, that change yeah. that was there. Wow. There, you know, there's, not, there's another one with him that he you know, I would tell some stories about my eldest, but uh, let's just stick with the youngest because the eldest has got them too. But the youngest, it was very impatient, stubborn, very impatient. And on our very first day, the eldest, because he's the one, if you remember rightly, that's had the illnesses, kind of struggling with the climate, with the height, the altitude. 
he throws up. He throws up for five hours. He can't even keep water down. And the 12-year-old is like, well, this is all very boring. It's too slow. And says to me, I'm going ahead. And I give him a water bottle of water. And I basically have that choice. I have to watch him go off and I have to stay with the 16-year-old and I have to trust. So that's one thing. But we are on something that has a trail. You know, it's not the wilderness. It's not the Pacific Coast Trail or something. This is, there's only one route over the Pyrenees. And on the other side, there's, you know, 18,000 people. So it's a very, you know, it's a very community walk. So I had to trust him. And that happened. And then two days later, we were in the middle of the, in the middle of nowhere. And we found an Italian man absolutely weeping on his knees on the ground, very Italian, very dramatic. And we understood that he was crying because he'd lost his companions. And he literally had no idea whether to go back for them or forward from them. And that just was that. And then we moved on. And my youngest became really, really silent and then started to ask if he could please have some help carrying his backpack. And then started to just sort of become a little bit like clingy. And then we got to the end of our day and we met the Italian and he had found his companions and he was on the table next to us in a restaurant or eating his pilgrim minute meal. And my youngest turned to me and he went, I realized that on my first day, I could have lost my family. And I came on this walk to get closer to you. My own choice to get impatient could have broken us up. And I was like, okay, we're going to be good for the rest of this walk. (laughs) (laughs) But it it was a space. Yeah, 12 years old. It was a space, you know, for them to make, to, to find out some of that stuff about ourselves. Wow. It's such a, such a space to think and be while just, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing here and, and projecting based on my own experiences being in wildernessy type of situations <laughs> where you're, you're just you in the earth and you got a lot of time to think. And, you know, it's the kind of time we don't have or give ourselves in yeah. I mean, life. I don't want to promote the Camino in any way, shape or form. It's not everybody's answer. But I will tell you one thing. It is not in the wilderness. And I think that's why it has mm. more, you know, a different type of power. You're constantly dealing with people mm. and people are imperfect. And so there's a lot of trigger. Characters. Yeah. And, you know, they, this, this walk fell into disuse during the Renaissance time. So they they built some highways over it and some cement factories along it and things like that. So, you know, you're constantly confronted by things that are not comfortable mm-hmm. and hard. Mm-hmm. But so that's, you know, sure. Has, sure. Has, but if I go back to your point, by th- my children throwing themselves out into the world and not knowing what the future was. And, you know, even on a daily, I would, they would, my youngest would say to me, oh, well, but what's the next town like? What's it going to be like? And I'd be like, I don't know. <laughs> and he got, the, all of us got so good at being okay, comfortable with not knowing. Right. And that we'd work it out. And so, you know, to back up your your whole message, which I really cannot wait to have your TED Talk out because I will be sharing that link every single time somebody comes up with that not enough or that sh- I need to know or but what's a good decision thing or any of the stuff. <laughs> right. like, Mine's a good yeah, retort to a lot, of, <laughs> a lot of. Yes, you are going to become my default <laughs> retort. <laughs> yeah, again, different experience. But when I say wilderness, I, I guess I'm even more just talking about the unknown and discomfort. And it's funny because yeah. Steve and I put ourselves in that situation 
a couple of times, but we we did it the one time for four months. And then we tried to recreate it and kept trying to put ourselves in uncomfortable situations because of all the value that we got out of it. And it, I'll admit it was it was harder <laughs> when we were trying to create that situation as opposed to taking a leap and going on a, an adventure. <laughs> I guess that's the why your story is so different because not everybody wants to be me, but so many people can completely relate to you or resonate with your experiences. And, you know, when I go back to why did, why did I choose to be a film director, there was only one woman. This is the thing is when we can hear many stories or many kind of experiences, it starts to make it much more possible, it starts to be real. And it, like in our case, in reality, you, you know, there's the Queen of England, for example, or Obama, or we are never going to be them and what they do and what they've achieved in life seems too far away from us. But when we can listen to somebody who doesn't look as though they're that far down the path, that they're not so different from us. You know, I couldn't become Barbara Streisand because I wasn't born in Hollywood, didn't have her connections, never slept with Robert Redford, many, many things that were not the same <laughs> that made it very hard for me to become her. But when they can see you and with the greatest of respect, you look like they it, it's possible for them. And that's what you're saying. It is. But mm -hmm. we need to see somebody make it possible who looks like might be us. Mm -hmm. Yes. And the, these collective stories, somehow we've managed to make stories on pedestals. You, you know, we have the, the Olympian. You know, it does come from our Greek roots. It would be the story of the extraordinary person. And they would be on a pillar, a pedestal, sorry. Whereas that just leaves the rest of us feeling like we're the audience. Mm. And when we encourage a, an entrepreneur to tell a story, we are the storyteller, the person who leads others, foretells what is possible. Then, then it's possible. It is possible then because people see it. And as you say, um, you know, I'm not everybody's cup of tea, <laughs> but then you will be. Right. And they'll be able to hear it because it feels real for them. I, I needed that reminder myself while I was gearing up to give this speech. And I love that you're saying it here because I think anyone listening, I mean, I think TEDx is feels unattainable to most people or like they don't have that story. And I think what I've really, you know, I may have thought this, but I don't think I really felt it. I think what I really feel now after our work together is every person really does have a story worth telling. It sounded so, oh yeah, sure, everyone. Yeah, like it right? <laughs> I, mean, sure, I have to say that. No, <laughs> genuinely, every person, because we're all just people connecting on our stories. And is, and if you, now, not every person is equipped to tell that powerful story out yeah. of the gate, but everybody has that story. And with some, you know, guidance, Anybody, everybody could give a very powerful speech that could inspire or connect with or soothe. Or did you, what did you, you had four. What are the four? They, stories heal or they inspire. And inspire is the reminder of the human condition, not the one that gets locked in like, oh, well, that was nice. Lead. The leadership story is so powerful, particularly as we need to grow leaders from our community and shoulders for the future to stand on. And then there's the foretelling story. The story that 
rem that that reveals that the way we're doing things doesn't work like maybe the way we're eating mm. could be changed or the one that's you know that shows the possibility for sure and that usually is the one where propaganda loves working there <laughs> you know the propaganda is the dark side of really good right. storytelling but they do they, you know they in innately they have those four powers obviously story also has the power to connect story is the mirror or the reflection of who we are before the mirror was invented the only way we understood who we were was through the, our stories our ancestral stories our cultural stories the stories somebody told us about us directly not always helpful sometimes your mum says something that triggers you but you know right um, that's back to what i was could... saying about the stories and how i think of them those stories you're trying to understand so you can change them <laughs> because they have a negative effect on you it's a whole powerful part to this anyway sorry keep yeah. going <laughs> And, it, it, you know, they, they we are literally telling ourselves stories in hundreds of ways, those little stories, like, is it a good morning, bad morning? <laughs> right. It's how we operate in the world. It's how we know how to do everything. It's, yeah, yeah. All those memes we keep on a Pinterest board are to retell a story. You wake up in the morning and you're like, oh, I just don't want to get up. Right. Whoa. And then you go, you reach up to that Pinterest board with those grade A memes on it and you pull one off and you're like, oh, yeah, that'll do. And you throw that one up. Be stronger than your excuses. <laughs> you know, that's a whole different story suddenly right there. You're like, yep, I'll Instagram that. I'll Facebook that. I'll stick it on Snapchat. I don't have that account. <laughs> um, you, know. you TikTok. Choose, you put that one. TikTok. TikTok. <laughs> and, yeah. and then, and yeah, that's the one you put in the WhatsApp group because, you know, everyone's going to go, you go, girl. Right. And then you never actually take it on yourself. <laughs> No, but you know. <laughs> or maybe you do. Maybe you try. Well, I cannot thank you enough for your for your process, for your grace, for your ear, for your brilliance helping me craft this TEDx talk that I can't wait for everybody to hear. It's really the marriage of me and Melanie <laughs> coming together to birth this talk that would have been it something is, completely uh, different without you, obviously. It would have been a, a speech as opposed to a firecracker. <laughs> it is, you know, I, I genuinely, you ha are a remarkable, remarkable woman. And I, it's been an incredible privilege to be on this journey with you. And, you know, I wish we could just keep going. Why do you have to actually give the text? <laughs> well, ha has any, have you actually you know told anybody the title of it? I haven't. Come on. Should I? to share it now. <laughs> oh, come on. If they haven't me. pieced it together, then they're just going to have to wait. <laughs> okay. I like that strategy. <laughs> you know, if, if we haven't dropped it enough in this, in this talk. We have, have hinted there are clues throughout there are, it. Yes. Very clear roadmap to my talk in this, in this conversation. Isn't it amazing that we can become these close friends in such a short amount of time when you live in in what, Windsor, what? where there's a castle and a queen just outside of London, and you actually live near Queens, <laughs> in New in York, dirty Brooklyn. And but don't worry, I will see you in person when I come to your retreat in Spain. <laughs> oh yes! Really, really gonna... quickly, the next step in your journey. Can you share it? 
I am. Well, I can. I am. I'm in flight to owning a piece of land that I'm going to open up a retreat on, so that we can have these magical dream temples or you know storytelling stuff or big idea sharing weekends. I suppose the really remarkable thing about that is is I will be the first person in or the first woman in my lineage to own land outright without needing to go to the bank with a man to sign the the documents. Wow. Gosh, congratulations. I can't wait. You promised you would send me some photos. I can't wait to see them. Steve and I love Spain. (laughs) We're definitely coming. Maybe we will, maybe we will pilgrimage across Spain with Axel and then we can end (laughs) at your oasis. Now you just wrote a wish list and now I have to put that on my list. I I do things like that when I say I will, mostly because I've made it part of my story that I can't say something like that and then not do it. So people are often surprised when I show up. They're like, oh, I didn't think you'd actually come. Like I said I would. <laughs> so here I am. That is you. You <laughs> put it out there and then you make it happen. As do you, Melanie. Thank you again. Thank you for this lovely conversation. We will not be strangers. No. Thank you for the whole journey. And thank you for today. This is the most beautiful celebration of our extraordinary (laughs) journey. Yes. Yeah, I feel like I should pop champagne. (laughs) I know. It's popping in my head. It's it's 10 a.m. here, so I can't... I'm not ready for the champagne yet, but yeah. But thank you for changing my life and changing the the way I work with people into a three day. Oh yeah, session <laughs> that's amazing. Well, Do I'm you know? I'm not going to thank you yet for how much this changes my life because this talk hasn't you even gone know. live yet. So I we're going to have to have a follow. Up. We'll have a follow up episode. We'll talk about cool. what happens. Okay, it's a date. Oh my god, I love you. Okay, love you too. If you want to tell a story on stage that will change your life, Melanie is absolutely the person that I recommend to take you on that journey. You can learn more about how she works at makeyourstorymatter.co.uk. I'll also put that link in the show notes at piasilva.com backslash podcast. Or... Lucky you, she's actually putting on a group program right now that you can check out at awakenthelegendwithin.com. If you want to find your boldest message so you can influence people into action, either in person or on stage or even online around the world, there is nothing better than delivering a really powerful story. Also, if you know other entrepreneurs who struggle to put their business in its place and could benefit from hanging out with us here, please share this podcast with them. Hard work can only take you so far. It's how you show up in your business that really makes the difference. And to make sure that you don't miss an episode of Show Your Business Who's Boss, hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast player. Inspired by Melanie today, I want you to do something powerful but simple. I want you to take a few minutes to just think about and commit to getting on a stage to share your powerful message with the world. It can be a goal for the next six months. It can be a goal for the next six years. But I want you to just take a second to envision it happening and write it down. Write down what you see, write down how you feel, and write down the person that you would need to be to do that in a way that makes you feel powerful. 
being seen as a leader on stage, delivering a powerful story can change the trajectory of your life. And if you're serious about growing personally and professionally, it's something I encourage you to commit to today and to work towards. Because once you do it, you will have truly showed your business who's boss.